Hello, and welcome to the In Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Hamilton. This is the first episode of the month, which means we are talking about one of the names or attributes of God. You might not have known that the Bible refers to God in different names at different times and in different situations. The names are meant to reflect some part of God's character or one of his attributes. We will look at a different name each month. I'll try to say the Hebrew name and then the English translation of it. We'll look at the name in context of the Bible, talk about what characteristic of God that it shows us, and give him praise for that attribute. Today we are going to take a look at the name El Roi, and that means the God who sees me. So the main portion of the Bible that we're going to look at today is Genesis chapter 16 and also Genesis chapter 21 verses 8 through 21. And these are the sections that talk about Hagar and Abram at the time, then changed to Abraham, and Sarai, then changed to Sarah. And we'll talk about their story and see that in the scripture, Hagar does refer to God as the God who sees me. So Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lehai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 
Okay, and a side note is that Ishmael means God hears. And the name of the well, Bir Lehai Roi, means the well of the living one who sees me. Then we flip over to Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. This continues talking about Hagar and Ishmael. And the child grew and was weaned. That would be Isaac. At this time, Isaac had been born to Abram, Abram, which was now Abraham, and Sarai, which got changed to Sarah. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay, so to discuss these passages of scripture about Hagar and Ishmael, we'll start with Abram, who later became Abraham, and he was promised by God to be a father of many nations. So his offspring was going to be more than the sand on the seashore, something like that is what God had promised him, that he would have many, many, many descendants. And they were in their old age, Abram and Sarai, and they had not born any children yet. So both because of God's promise and because they were probably in that day and age looked down upon for not having children yet, they, I guess, started panicking and thinking they had to take matters into their own hands. And Sarai turned to her servant girl and told Abram to have relations with her so that they could get offspring that way. So it is important to note, too, that Hagar is referred to as a servant here. My study Bible says that the Hebrew term denotes a personal servant of the wife, not a slave girl. That will be important to distinguish between chapters 16 and chapters 21. So in 16, she is a servant, not a slave. Also of note is the fact that Sarai was trying to use Hagar in order to get children for herself. And of course, in our culture and day and age, that's foreign to us. 
we would not have our husbands, you know, take somebody else to have children with and then take those children and call them our own. (laughs) Back in that time, it was custom attested in the Code of Hammurabi and in texts from Nuzi and Nimrud, the authority over the children resulting from this union belonged to the chief wife, not to the slave girl. Those were old texts that kind of outlined the customs of the times. And so that is how Sarai was going to get around the problem of not having her own children. And then it's also good to note that Hagar, when she became pregnant, it says she looked with contempt on her mistress. And my study Bible adds that the Hebrew word here is translated curse because she treats Sarah with disdain. Hagar is alienated from the family of blessing. So she's basically like cursing Sarah and treating her with disdain, which I can imagine too because... I wouldn't want to have my mistress or master, you know, take my children and claim them as their own either. That would be a very difficult thing, I would think. So right away here, with the pregnancy of Ishmael, there is conflict. There's conflict between the line of promise, which God promised Abraham to have children and descendants, heirs, with Sarah. So that is the promised line, the children of promise that will become the Israelites who are God's chosen people over against Hagar and Ishmael, where Hagar and Sarah are already having conflict. And we saw then that the angel of the Lord who comes and speaks to Hagar says that for Ishmael, his hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand would be against him. So it is foretelling of the conflict that's going to always be present between the two lines of Ishmael and Isaac. And the angel of the Lord also said, the last line was, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So the kinsmen would be Isaac or, you know, later Israel. And so he will dwell outside of the promised land. So verse 6 of chapter 16 says, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The note on dealing harshly and fled, my study Bible says, The intraceable Ishmael is the unruly son of a mother who chooses the freedom of the wilderness over submitting to the yoke of her mistress. So that is sort of what is in the heart of Hagar. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want to necessarily stay and be treated harshly by your mistress. But it's actually saying that she wanted the freedom of the wilderness, even though the wilderness was probably harsh in itself. And she would have no provision, no care, no like food provided for her or shelter or anything like that. She wanted that over submitting to Abraham and Sarah and their family. It just shows a heart with maybe a little bit of rebelliousness and I guess just disdain for Abraham and Sarah. Um, So then the angel of the Lord came and found her in the wilderness. And there have been some debate about who or what the angel of the Lord is referred to here. My study Bible just says real quick, the identity of the angel of the Lord is debated. According to some scholars, the angel of the Lord appears in many instances to be a theophany, a visual manifestation of God himself, though the angel of the Lord is sometimes distinguished from God in other cases. Hagar's remarks in verse 13 imply that she has seen God. Others, however, note that angel means messenger. 
They argue that as secular messengers are fully equated with their senders, so God's angel is identified with him. Either way, God communicates to Hagar through the angel in this text. And he starts with a question about where have you come from and where are you going? Now, of course, God knows all, sees all, all of that. He knows the whole situation, but he just wants to hear what she is going to say about that. She says she's fleeing for her mistress, Sarai, and he tells her to return to her mistress and submit to her. So it's exactly the thing that she didn't want to do. But he tells her that he's going to multiply her offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then goes into specifically with Ishmael that she should call him Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so that's when she, after he says all this, she says, you are a God of seeing. Or it can be translated as, you are a God who sees me. And then goes on to say, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Just a note on that, whether she said a God or the God, it seems to point to me to the fact that she is Egyptian. So that was a pagan culture that had multiple gods that they would worship. I don't know how much of, you know, Abraham and Sarah's relationship to God was known or heard about or talked about or whatever in their household. So I don't know what she truly believed about Yahweh, the one true God. But, you know, she could be just saying that he is a God that sees her and looks after her. Uh, The note in my study Bible on her phrase of you are God of seeing says, This divine name is not attested elsewhere. It expresses the deep significance to Hagar of God's gracious revelation to her. Even while she is lost in the wilderness, God sees her and reveals himself to her. This is her revelation that God does see all and might be making her think that he is the one true God, that he is bigger, powerful, you know, seeing all, hearing all. Then we skip ahead to chapter 21. There are a few things that happen in there, like Abram and the covenant of circumcision and where he gets changed his name to Abraham and Sarai goes Sarah and the birth of Isaac is promised. And then we come to the birth of Isaac in chapter 21. And we can assume then that Hagar did go back to be with Abraham and Sarah in the family as a servant, but now we see her in chapter 21 referred to as a slave. So from chapter 16, there was a note that according to the code of Hammurabi, the despised mistress in this situation could not sell her maidservant, but she could mark her with the slave mark and count her among the slaves. It seems to point to, in chapter 21, that she did become marked as a slave of Sarah and Abraham, uh, because we will see how the text calls her a slave woman, and the note on that says the Hebrew word here differs from the one translated servant in chapter 16. In her anger, Sarah stresses Hagar's servile status, an indication of the animosity between these two rivals. So we see Hagar called a slave a couple of times in that section. Let's see. Didn't it say Abraham was 89 when Ishmael was born? Oh, 86. Okay, and then it does say in chapter 21, verse 5, that Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 
So then we can assume that Ishmael was about 14 years old when this was happening, when um, Isaac, well, it would even be more. That would be, he would, uh, Ishmael would have been 14 when Isaac was born. But then uh, when Isaac was weaned, my note says that the weaning took place usually around three years old. So Ishmael would have been around 17 then when they were holding the feast and Sarah saw Ishmael laughing. That note is that he was laughing at Isaac, kind of scoffing at him, making fun of him, that type of thing. Basically just like looking down on him. We see that Abraham was displeased about Sarah wanting to cast Hagar and her son away. The note on that part in my Bible is, as a father, Abraham feels genuine love and affection for Ishmael. In addition, he may be displeased with Sarah's request on account of customs prohibiting the expulsion of Hagar and her son. So it was not a custom to just kick out your slaves or be able to sell them. Obviously, Ishmael was Abraham's son as well. And so between those two things, Abraham was displeased about it. But still, he said to do as Sarah said. So he gave Hagar bread and water and sent them away. When the water was gone, you know, they were out in what they call the wilderness. But in that part of the world, that's actually the desert. The wasteland <laughs> is the wilderness. So they're out in the desert and their water's gone. And Hagar is thinking that they're going to die. The way the Bible translates that she put the child under one of the bushes, it makes it sound like Ishmael is like a really young child. But like I just calculated, he would have been about 17 years old. She just probably told him to sit down under that bush. So at least he would be in the shade. And then she went a little distance off because she didn't want to watch the death of her son. So she was just thinking that he was basically going to just become dehydrated and starve and die. She was weeping and it says God heard the voice of the boy. Obviously he was also saying things or praying or crying. You know, I don't know what all he was doing and saying, but it says that God heard the voice of the boy. And then the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. So again, it's another reiteration of God's promise to make Ishmael, as well as Isaac, into great nations then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water, filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And then God was with the boy and he grew up. And then obviously at the end, his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt because she was an Egyptian. So he was half Egyptian. So that probably would have been the normal custom to take a spouse from your heritage or your native people so I had a note also on the word nation, making Ishmael into a great nation, that because of God's great love for Abraham, even his natural children will be blessed on earth, though they are not part of the line of covenant promise. So obviously making someone into a great nation would be looked at as a blessing. 
So they're going to be blessed here on earth, but they are not part of the line of promise of God's chosen people. So through all of this encounter, um, we see that God is faithful and trustworthy. He is faithful to fulfill his promises to Abraham and then to Isaac and to Ishmael. So even though Ishmael is not part of the chosen line, he still gets the promise fulfilled that he will be a great nation. And we see God being faithful in giving Abraham and Sarah Isaac, their biological son, and God is trustworthy to fulfill those promises and to give care and compassion and provision. So Hagar, even though she was alone, she was impoverished, she was pregnant, just kind of destitute out in the wilderness, she found that she wasn't alone. God had seen her and her circumstance, her past, present, and future. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the hairs on our head are numbered. Not even a sparrow falls from the ground without him knowing. We see those passages in Luke 12, 7 and Matthew 10, 30. Luke 12, 7 says, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 30 says, But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So we see that God watches over his children. And, you know, I don't know if Hagar, you know, what she actually knew or thought or believed about Yahweh, the one true God. So I don't know if she, if she was ever saved. But God watches over his children. And here it would seem, you know, also over the children that he made a promise to, if that makes sense. Even though Ishmael was not in his chosen line, he still had made a promise to Abraham, his father, and then to him that he is going to carry out and fulfill. God is near, helping guide us through things and working out his plans for our future. You know, our plans may not always work out or be the same plans that God has, but He's going to be sovereign and make everything work out, even if it's not the way we thought it would, or even having a different outcome than we thought it would. Even if the outcome is different, it is still what God had planned for us. And there will be other blessings, most likely intangible blessings, through that and in all of that. God upholds the promises he makes years before. And like I said, God is faithful and trustworthy. So all of these things really resonated with me when I had my miscarriages because I was so filled with hope and belief in because this story reinforces that belief that God was watching me. He saw me and my experiences and my grief and pain and that he was still near and helping to get me through all of that. And then, like I was talking about him working out his plans for our future, just watching all of that unfold, and it reiterated to me how faithful and trustworthy God truly is. Like, we can actually trust him. Even though there is pain, there is suffering, there are trials, we can still trust him. We still hold on to him, have our hope in him, and it's something that really is a peace beyond understanding somebody who is not a Christian or has not experienced it cannot know what that is like. 
And I gave thanks a lot to God for seeing me, you know, comforting me, helping me get through things, and also for remembering me. A lot of the stories in the Old Testament of the ladies who were barren or not able to have children talk about asking God to remember them. And it isn't that he's forgetting them ever. It is just, you know... Asking for them to have children and be blessed like sooner rather than later, I guess, is a way you could put it. So I did a lot of that kind of praying, thanking him for seeing me and asking him to remember me. Now we have some random verses just to look at to reinforce this idea of God seeing us, caring about us. That God never slumbers. He sees everything happening. He sees the good you do and will reward. We can ask him for help to do what's right. We can ask him to help us to see him for who he is. Just to know that he has deep, steadfast love for his children and compassion, tenderness, wanting to protect and provide for his children. All of these wonderful things that we can thank him for. So the first verse we're going to look at is Psalm 33, verses 13 to 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So that's showing God's omnipotence and omnipresence that he knows all and sees all. And then down to verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. I'm actually just going to read straight through from verse 13 to 22. That's the end of the psalm there. So uh, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Psalm 121, verse 3, and then verses 5 through 8. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, Psalm 139, verses 1 to 18. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Okay, over to Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. So basically the first part, God looks on the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Again, noting that God sees all, looking over the whole face of the earth, and he's everything both evil and good. And then there are two verses in Matthew. One is Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Matthew 6.3-4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So he sees things that happen in secret as well. We cannot run from his presence as Psalm 139 said, he sees us even in our mother's womb as we are being made and formed, and we cannot flee from his presence. Just a side note, for those who love music, there is a artist named Joel Engel, E-N-G-L-E, and he has a really good song based on Psalm 139. And I highly recommend checking that out. He had an album out, I think it was in the early 2000s, called Nothing Left of Me. That whole album is wonderful. I highly recommend looking that up. I don't believe he's still performing Christian music. I'll put a link to this song on YouTube in the show notes. His whole album of Nothing Left of Me is great. Okay, so through all of these things, we see all the ways God is faithful, trustworthy, that he sees us, he knows us, he has compassion and loves us, and wants to take care of us. Just know and be encouraged by the fact that we serve a God who sees us. That should just bring so much comfort to us. I mean, I remember as a young child, kind of being freaked out by that, like just knowing that God was knowing and seeing all of the sins that I would commit or uh, ways that I wandered away from him for a little while, just not like growing and engaging in the word and prayer, knowing that he would see all of that and probably been displeased and angry about, you know, the sin and all of that. 
And yet he came and drew me back to him. And it makes me so grateful and thankful. And that he loved me and you, if you're a child of God, enough to send his son to die for us as our atonement on the cross to pay for our sins and take upon God's wrath upon himself so that we would not have to experience that. And that he lived a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life for us so that we were imputed with that perfect righteousness and all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Our sins should grieve us. Obviously, we're not perfect and not going to be until we're glorified in heaven. But we can also just be totally blown away in awe and wonder at the amount of love that he showed us by his sacrifice and taking that wrath on himself so that we don't have to. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you see all, that your eye is on every hair of our head and even on the rest of creation, that your eye is even on the sparrow. We thank you for faithfully hearing our prayers and knowing that your word says you hear us. And furthermore, we thank you so much that you delight to help us. We thank you for your watchful care and your timely help and all the ways that you protect us. There's probably even ways that we don't know that you've protected us. And we thank you for even those. We thank you for being faithful, for being trustworthy. We thank you for being the truth and being our salvation. And we confess any tendency to accuse you of abandoning us, of any disbelief, despite the evidence of your past faithfulness, of any self-centeredness in our hearts and heads, any lack of concern for others' salvation, or lack of seeing others as fellow image bearers of you. So we ask you to keep us mindful of your presence We ask you to hear our cries for help, which we know you do. It's just hard to believe that all the time. We ask you to grieve our hearts with the things that grieve yours, to convict us of our sins and help us repent of them, changing our behavior and renewing our hearts and minds so we die to ourselves and be conformed to be more like you. Help us to realize your love for us and help us to grow to love you more help us to glorify you and enjoy you forever in all areas of our lives. And may we reflect your glory and your beauty to the earth and the people in this dark world. We ask this all in your precious name. Amen. So that's a wrap for this week. Join me next time when we will discuss Psalm 91. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Christian Podcast Community. If you're looking for more great podcasts, visit podcast.strivingforeternity.org slash shows. Whether you're wanting to listen to sound theology, apologetics, podcasts for women, or even the how-tos of podcasting, the Christian Podcast Community has something for everyone. My blog is www.kristen-hamilton.com. You can connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or send me an email at inawonderpodcast at gmail.com. 
keep reading your Bible. And look for God's attributes, what verses cause you to confess any sins, and ways that you can praise God for who He is and what He's done.